This is the second part of our two-part episode, De Bekentenis. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to part one before listening here. Thanks. Ik met het radio nieuws. Vroege ochtend. Previously on. Previously on. On love and. Love and. Head radio. Radio. Radio and microwave and infrared. In the early morning, Friday the 6th of October, 1995, 15-year-old Nicole von Hurk went missing. What did she look like the last day you saw her? Beautiful. Andy says he had a good relationship with Nicole. I have the feeling that Nicole was sometimes scared of him. Eventually, when she got found, it was almost like a relief. Police say the body is in an advanced stage of decomposition. Nicole will never come home again. The police suspect a crime has been committed. The case was closed. There were no officers on it. It was a dead-end story. There's only one way to reopen this case, and that is to falsely confess. Je luistert naar Love and Radio. Ik heet Nick van der Kolk. De aflevering van vandaag is De Bekentenis met Andy van den Hulk. discuss this idea with with anybody i didn't speak a word to anybody because i know that anybody would have said this is a very bad idea i knew it was a gamble if it would turn the wrong way the police would happily lock me up case closed so i knew there was a price to pay but then again can you put a price tag on finding the killer of your sister I like to think that any brother would do that for his baby sister. But you must know not any brother would do. I mean, what you did is is so remarkable and beyond what most people would would do. I'm not most people. So I called nine nine nine. I said I want to report a murder. They asked. Who got murdered? I said my sister. You know who's done it? It's at me. Where is your sister now? I said, oh, she's buried a long time ago. What preparation did you do about the, what you were going to say? None. I was like, if I don't do it now, I won't do it. So do it. They were there incredibly fast. I mean. It, it wouldn't have taken longer than three, maximum four minutes. I opened the door so they wouldn't kick it in. When they came in, they were really friendly. They also could see that I wasn't in a lot of distress. They let me pack a bag, make sure that the dog had food. And I also, I, I asked them, I said, can I put on Facebook that I confessed to my sister's murder. Don't worry about me. I'll be back soon. And they let me do that. I wanted to put falsely in there, but I was like, if I do that, then game over. (laughs) They're going to send me back, back home, and I'll have to be at work at Monday. (laughs) Van de politie. Die belde mij op en die zei van... uh... They called me up and said, your son in England has confessed to killing Nicole. At that time, the relationship between Andy and myself wasn't that great because he had a lot of problems. 
Want ja, de police were convinced he had something to do with it. This can't be possible. This simply can't be. And he is capable of doing a lot of things and he has made a lot of mistakes in his life. He had periods of heavy drinking. But kill a fellow human being? And he is too nice for that. He is too good a boy for that. Were the, uh, were the Dutch investigators there the next day? Two days after. The conversation was very, very difficult because, I mean, I was confessing to something that I, I, I didn't know how it took place, where it took place. At that precise moment in time, I did not even know how my sister was murdered. Was she strangled? Was she still alive for a few weeks or not? Was, I didn't know. So I had to stay as, as vague as possible. So that interview ends, and then, and then what? Well... I thought they would take me back to the Netherlands on the, on the plane with them. I'll go back to the Netherlands. They see it's a phony confession, but the team was already up and running, so they might as well. It didn't go like that. Because you have to be extradited, and to be extradited, there's a lot of paperwork involved. So I had to spend 28 days on remand in one of the worst prisons in England. How does it feel when you get into one of the worst prisons in England? Hell. Utter hell. Doors slamming, people shouting, profanities. It's a world on its own. They've got their own rules and their own regulations and it is so far away from, from the real world. I don't get frightened very fast or a lot. But, yeah, that frightened the living daylight out of me. On the second day, my cellmate, he came in from exercise in the afternoon. Mate, whatever you do, don't step outside of the cell because they're going to rip your head off. Work got out while you're in here. And he was like, and I tried to defend you. And they almost came after me. So stay there. And if I'm not here, shut that door. And he fetched like clean clothes. He fetched my food. I had to strip wash every day because I couldn't go into, into the shower. I would have been dead. And that's how I lived for 28 days. Were there any moments during those 28 days where you thought maybe I shouldn't have done this? Nope. No. Were you ever worried during those 28 days they would pin it on you just because now they can close the case? Hell yeah. I was talking to my cellmate about the reasons why I did what I did. He was like, you do realise that they have put people away for a lot less than this. If the police has a confession where they don't have to do anything else than just have that confession get it in front of a judge, let the judge sign it, and there you go. 20 years of your life gone. So, yes, that option was in my head. Andy van den Hurk, verdacht van de moord op zijn... Andy van den Hurk, who is a suspect in the 1995 murder of his stepsister Nicole, is to be extradited to the Netherlands as soon as possible. 
once they put the extradition procedure in motion, they have to reopen the case. So I knew from, from, from the moment that I was going to be extradited, I knew it wasn't a cold case anymore. Bij het politiebureau in Eindhoven. Our reporter Martijn Smits is standing at the police station in Eindhoven. Martijn, do you know when he was released? Around an hour and a half ago. We knew, of course, that he would be released today, but not exactly when. Uh, 18 past 7 on a Tuesday, the assistant of my solicitor picked me up at the back of the police station. I was lying in the back of his car under a blanket when he drove out of the gateway of the police station. He was like, it's safe to come up now. So I came up and I could see in the distance, I could see the police station. There must have been a hundred television stations with cameras waiting for me to come out. Everybody wanted a piece of me. Sorry, Britney Spears, but I had to use that. (laughs) Everybody really wanted a piece of me. Are you released under the assumption that you're innocent? Still a suspect. Yeah, still a suspect. I didn't want to see him. And I don't think Andy wanted to see me either. You just don't admit to murder without a good reason. And I don't know if Andy's reason was to restart the investigation or to get himself some publicity and to draw attention to himself in the worst way or just something that was bothering him that he drunkenly wrote on Facebook. Andy was pretty unstable back then. We didn't know that the consequences of Andy's confession would be that they opened the cold case. I'm grateful to him for this, but we couldn't see that at the time. I had read online, but it's entirely possible this isn't true, that you had thought that perhaps your father was connected to the murder? I have thought that over a very long while. When you uh, did all this, was there a part of you that thought, oh, they're going to exhume the body and then there's going to be DNA linking him to, to the murder? There was a possibility. Did you discuss that with the police at all? Yes. I, I always had a suspicion. I kind of tucked that away with the love I felt for my dad the belonging to be accepted by my dad. So there's a lot of emotions going on there. But it always nagged me because it wasn't really wrong time, wrong place. That's it. Because it must have happened quite fast. She must have been transported to a car. Her bicycle got found in a river I mean, all these things, Eindhoven is quite a big city. At seven o'clock in the morning, six, seven o'clock in the morning, there's bound to be people jogging, there's bound to be people walking their dogs. So was it premeditated or not? And if it was premeditated, then who would have known that she was actually sleeping at Nan's and not at home? After I got released, I stayed at a friend of mine for for a while and she showed me what my dad did. It took him about five seconds after my arrest to 
appear in front of a camera. If I think about all the things Nicole's school friends are saying, they were all scared of him. Nicole was terrified of him. Oh, I've always, I've always known this. I've always known that he's done it. I have to conclude that the authorities have the right man at the moment, however tough that is for our family. We have to face the fact that the case is solved and we can move on to another chapter. I said various things to the media. For example, I said, Andy can't be. Andy isn't capable of it. But I also said, yeah, it could be. I spread two opinions to the media because I was confused and I just didn't know what to do with this information. Sometimes you say things that you don't actually mean. Things just get pulled out of you. I was angry with him too. Very angry that he did that. Bring it to the media. Why that way? Why not fly over to the Netherlands? Sit down with me and the police and tell a story. But he had to put it on Facebook and let the whole world know. That was just so typically Andy. That was typisch des Andys. I mean, which father in the world would immediately go in front of a camera and say, like, I've always known that? You're talking about the same father that let me babysit my little brother and my little sister after my sister's death. He's always known it. He is one of the biggest liars in the world. He's a monster. He's an absolute monster. And one day I will make sure that mask will fall off and everybody else will see it. So I started my own media war with my dad. Steve Wool Andy is inmiddels weer terug in Engeland. Stepbrother Andy is now back in England. He thinks it's terrible that his father has accused him of murdering his little sister. And I told every media outlet she was pregnant of him. You know about your accusation that your father might have raped Nicole. That's a pretty serious accusation. Do you have proof of that? It is nog wel een aantijging. Maar dat zou bewijsmateriaal zijn. Ik weet inmiddels uit het onderzoek dat ze zwanger was. Ik heb een heel... Ja, ik had zoiets van. I was like, Andy, Andy, get treatment. You are nuts. Don't don't do this. You are saying things that you can't prove and are untrue. And it's of no use to anyone because you are going to point the investigation in the wrong direction. It's just all wrong. Not to mention the police never suspected me again. Not in the least. They knew that we had nothing to do with it. Did you ever talk directly to him during this period? No. I was in a very emotional period in my life. I could not handle <clears throat> the emotions of, of the aftermath of what I had done. I completely lost it. I, I had a mental breakdown. I got hospitalized for three months in Dartford. That's South East London. What were the symptoms that you were manifesting? Mainly suicidal, yes. Very depressed, very very dark, very cold. Very lonely as well. I did not feel any belonging, any form of, of, of safety. It took a couple of months for them to actually exhume the body and, and get my sister out of her, out of her grave. When they finally exhumed her, it was in the middle of the night, so there was no media coverage, there was no press. 
I don't have any connection with what is in that coffin because I know that's not my sister anymore. I'm kind of oblivious to, to the fact that I might have hurt people in my family by wanting her to be lifted out of her grave. But I don't think that, that, that you lifted my sister out of that grave. What I was thinking, you're lifting evidence out of that grave. I was in my living room and I saw its uh, Dutch number. I answered and it was one of the guys from the police, the one that sat in the car next to me, telling me that they found a trace. I mean, PSV, my football club, can win the Champions League 30 times in a row and that would not give me the same feeling as I had when I heard that they had DNA and that the DNA was actually on that system. Ik werd gebeld in in Spanje door de the police new team leader called me when I was in Spain and he said, "Ad, are you sitting down?" I said, "Why?" He said, "Just sit down. I'm not kidding here. We found Nicole's culprit." Hij zei, we gaan je niet blij maken met een dode mus. Hij zei, maar we hebben de dader van Nicole gevonden. Hij was very convincing. Hij was not like all the others. Like we're on the right track or we have a suspicion. He simply said, we have found your child's murderer. The killer, the monster, had been done for rape a few times before that. They could have institutionalized him in 1987 because that was after four attempts of rape, putting a knife to somebody's throat and raping her. If he was institutionalized in 1987, my sister would still be here. Jos de G blijft vastzitten voor de moord op Nicole van der Hurk. Jos de G is to remain in jail for the murder of Nicole van den Hurk. The High Court has finalized this conviction. It took years for the case to progress. Jos de G became a suspect when he was convicted for a similar case in 2001. His DNA appeared to match the traces found on Nicole. We were warned door the we were warned by the state's attorney that a judge can take an hour to explain a ruling and only pronounce a sentence at the end. So we were prepared to that. This judge felt that we had gone through so much that she opened her sentence with, I will now explain why we condemn Jos de G for the murder of Nicole van den Hurk. The court sentences the suspect to a term of imprisonment of 12 years. The suspect is guilty of the rape and manslaughter of Nicole van den Hurk in 1995. He forced a 15-year-old girl on her way to work with her whole life ahead of her into sexual contact 
and, subsequently, took from her the most precious thing a human has, her life. The victim must have been incredibly frightened in the last moments of her life, knowing that her last hour was at hand. That must have been terrible for her. Justice had been done. What a relief, what a joy. How can you be happy now? You've still lost your child, but you are glad you can close this chapter and that the right man is being punished. For me, that was the end of the story. I mean, I could start grieving. I could start giving my sister a place in my heart, in my life, in in accepting her death. And yeah, I mean, you know the stages that you go through when you grieve. I finally could, could do that. 23 years too late, but... A year ago, my foot fell asleep and I stumbled in front of my house and broke my neck in two places. I was in the hospital wearing a stabilizer for almost five months. Andy heard about it and even though there was no real relationship to speak of, he still called my answering machine. Yeah, sorry, this is Andy. I heard you're dead and if you are hearing this, you, you are not. For God's sake, let me know if you are still alive. Then I will know if I still have a father. So I called him back. I said, your father is still alive. He answered, shall we try to talk to each other in a normal way? I said, I'm all for it. He said, I've been in treatment for five years. I have overcome my illness. I hardly drink alcohol anymore. So I think this is the moment to see if we can restore our relationship. We have been working on it for almost a year now. And we take a moment to correspond every day. We call regularly. My wife and I have decided to go to England soon to visit and to get to know him the way he is now. Because I think today's Andy is the sweet Andy I always knew was there. I feel we both feel it's the right time. That we don't have much time left and that we should try to get through this without arguing and blaming each other. And just take things as they are. Let bygones be bygones and work on the kind of father and son relationship where it's not too late to mean something to each other these last years. I like to think that my sister is surrounding me. Believe me or not, sometimes I really can feel her. I know she's pushing me in this interview. I just know that there's something pushing me into this interview because there's a lot of things in me shouting like, don't do this, don't do this. Yesterday we came at a point where I was like, I'm going to walk away because I can't do it. But I kind of feel that my sister is with me saying like, go on, please do it. The wound is still there and it still hurts and it will always hurt. But she's more like like a comfort blanket now than a burden, than something I don't want to think about because it hurts. I can't stop thinking about her. I don't want to stop thinking about her. So, wound or not, painful or not, she is there.
I felt sorry for myself for quite a long time. After my mental breakdown, I just, I felt I had the right to feel sorry for myself. But what I'm trying to do is to utilise the emotions and the feelings that I, I've felt over the years to channel that into something positive instead of negative, to at least try, and probably will, create a, a better society. There's definitely a connection between motivating, manoeuvring, or even manipulate people into, into certain positions. And I, I think that when you run an election... Those are the, are, are the main things you need to possess. I've got a brilliant idea in the making that would stop poverty forever. But I'm not going to say it because otherwise you're going to nick it and be the next president of the United States. Fantasies and dreams. Fantasies are things like I want to go to another solar system and see if there's life there. Dreams are goals you set for yourself and they should be achievable fantasies were when i was 12 and i wanted to have sex with george michael that's a fantasy having a dream is something else and becoming prime minister is it's a dream that's it for love and radio I'm very sorry to have to tell you that since this episode was originally produced in 2020, Andy died in his home at the age of 46 earlier this year. Today's episode was produced by Noam Osbin, Robin Amer, Jonathan Gruber, Nikki Stein, Julia DeWitt, Phil Demahovsky, and Stephen Jackson, with help from Tom Curry. Phil and Stephen did the sound design. It also featured music by Pierre Rousseau, Oliver Coates, Don't DJ, and Juliana Barwick. Ott's voiceover was provided by Richard Danharin. Additional voices were from Lotte Donders, Priscilla Machels, Joris Tumers, and Carlein Tumers. For more information about the music we feature on the show, stunning episode art and transcripts, please visit our website, loveandradio.org. You can also sign up for our mailing list there. Love and Radio is made possible thanks to its supporters. Thank you. And special thanks to Andrew Simmons, Casey Anderson, Dan Palmino, Jacqueline Leake, Jason V, Sam Hoffman, Sandra Schroeder, and Edging Candy Tuft. <laughs>